0: as Tom reads our passage for this morning. Good morning, church. If you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in John chapter 4 again this week. We're going to pick up in verse 15. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. Sir, the woman, the woman said to him, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, you don't, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you have had five husbands, and the man you, are now, you, are now, you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place of, to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman. An hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When He comes, He will explain everything. And Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, hopefully by this point, you've had an opportunity to find a copy of God's word. If you don't have one, we can certainly get up. There's one right in the back table, straight back there. And uh, it'll be helpful for you to follow along in our text together this morning. Um, one of the things that we just put a high value on here at Grace Church, uh, as you already know, and if you're new to our church, is that we take a high value of just... We, we stick close to the text. We, we, we study through books of the Bible, not because we uh, are trying to be uh, dry or whatever, but it's like we can't improve upon it, so why would we try to let the Scripture speak to God's people? This is what has been going on throughout history in the church, and it's something that we feel very privileged to continue in. One of the challenges to effective witness in our lives or for many Christians, is not so much befriending unbelievers, but rather turning that conversation with our unbelieving friends towards more serious considerations of what it means to be converted, what it means to be saved. The business of our lives, mine included, finds me many days in close proximity to non-Christians on a regular basis, but yet my busyness of my life, and I bet yours is as well, also equally causes me sometimes to rationalize the cost of pressing too deep into one another's lives because of the cost of what we might be on that relationship truth be told it is rather easy to assimilate people into our lives or sometimes even into our churches right do a few outreach activities for kids uh, produce a really good product on sunday mornings that attract people is the usual formula in our day in one sense, this is not really a bad thing. It's a good thing. We, we, we should try to put our best foot forward in a lot of ways. Except that for many people, if that's where it ends, if that's the, the, the level of our investment in their lives, we end up finding people just getting swallowed up into what we call the machine. Some people call it the gospel industrial product, uh, a complex. Right? We just get people involved in the machine. They just start doing Christian things. And uh, we feel pretty good about ourselves. We pat ourselves on the back and we say, okay, we've done our part. Great, they're plugged into the church. But we have oftentimes forgot that evangelism is much more than just getting people in the church, much more than just a, a, a simple one-time sharing of the gospel, but it's an investment in people's lives to make disciples because that's what Jesus called us to do, Right? That's so what we read a lot at the end of our services, right? Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He didn't call us to go and evangelize. He didn't call us to go convert. He called us to go make disciples. And that's the holistic call of God's people. And so when we, we're talking about evangelism in these days and we're looking at it through this text as we started last week, it's important that we, that, that we remember that our call to evangelism is just one piece of the whole gospel disciple-making project. That we are here to see people all the way through. That yes, our preaching and our programs are are in part supposed to help do that. Or, or, and, but it's but it's more than just getting people assimilated in the church. It's more than just finding your place, finding a place to serve in the church, which is wonderful. And we're glad we have so many wonderful servants here. But it's the it's the it's the ensuring that we engraft unbelieving friends and neighbors into this a more spiritually robust disciple life of Christ. People need more than just to be assimilated. They need to be engrafted. So when we're thinking about evangelism through this text this morning, I want you to keep that in mind because our continued investment, our continued courage, our continued sacrifice to walk people in gospel discipleship is is one that is wrought in our lives through the work of the Spirit in our lives so that we may draw people into a more deeper and wonderful and enriching repentance and faith. And so last week what we did was we kind of began this little section in John as we're coming kind of walking through John, and we'll be in John for quite a while. We kind of said, let's do a little mini-series on evangelism, kind of a, the call and practice of evangelism right here out of this text about, with Jesus and this woman from Samaria, uh, from, from Samaria um, here at the well. And that we want to look at this as, a, as a, maybe a picture to help us, help us think about, one, what does it look like to evangelize, be, like be evangelistically intentional, and, and, and really begin to kind of think about the, all the pieces. And I said to you, like, when I was studying this whole story, I came up with 10 points. And for some reason, I keep adding points to this. So this, this little mini-series might be a much bigger series before it's over with. But today, we're going to talk about the second part of that. Last week, we talked about just the, the kind of the, the ground of evangelism. We kind of talked about those parameters those the things that are kind of necessary for us to be thinking about in terms of how we engage people when we said look we saw four points i'm not going to give them to you in detail but just give them to you real real quick one we said that evangelism you must understand that it's a divine appointment it's something that god's doing through you he's appointed the times and places and the people you're supposed to go to we said secondly evangelism is a patient and persistent discourse it takes time it takes relationship it's not something you can just do one time share gospel and walk away More than a tract, although tracts can be very helpful. Three, we said evangelism is a mercy for sinners, meaning to bring truth to people in their despair is a merciful act, regardless of how they respond to the truth that you're sharing with them. Sometimes we don't want to share because we're afraid of how they're going to respond, but you're you're doing an act of mercy when you share the gospel. And then we said last, evangelism is a call to radiate the priceless excellencies of Christ and His accomplishments for us on the cross. So that was all last week, and if you didn't get the sermon last week, I'd encourage you to go online and check that out. It'll help you kind of get more ground for what we're going to today. But our conversation takes a turn today. We saw it there in verse 15. Jesus is um, making some headway. He's going to turn her towards some honest reflection. He's going to push her more from this her kind of Tempor- temporal uh, considerations of her life and her needs into more of eternal considerations, divine and spiritual considerations that she needs to consider. And so he's going to make her, he's going to help her consider her, what does it mean for her to be converted, to really be changed, to be saved. We like that word converted, don't we? Converted is a rich term, something that we don't often consider as believers as much as we should. But as we look at this text today, we're going to find that conversion requires facing. So we will show us three things, facing the uncomfortable truth about our sin, the impotence of misplaced worship, and our need of a Messiah who comes to be our good news of salvation. That's what we're going to look at in this text. We're going to see all this in just these few verses today. That one, if you're really going to be converted, if this woman's really going to be changed, she needs to understand, and we need to understand, the uncomfortable truth about our sin, the impotence of misplaced worship, and our need of a Messiah who comes to be good news for us in salvation. Now, let's quickly define conversion before we get into the text. Because I think sometimes we we think of conversion as things that necessarily we do, although there is, of course, things that we do in conversion. But really, this is really more about what God does in conversion. And so I couldn't improve upon Nine Marks, a ministry that we follow quite closely here at Grace, um, their, their definition of conversion. So I'm just going to give it to you. Conversion is a u-turn in a person's life right it's a u-turn in a person's life it's a turning one's whole person away from sin and to christ for salvation it's from idol worship to god worship from self-justification to christ's justification from self-rule to god's rule conversion is what happens when god awakens those who are spiritually dead and enables them to repent of their sins and have faith in christ that last sentence is particularly important conversion is what happens when god awakens those who are spiritually dead and enables them to repent of their sins and have faith in christ that's what jesus is doing in this text he's awakening your heart showing her the depth of her sin the the mercy and wonderful nature of worshiping god as he truly is and that how he and the messiah has come to her and offers her eternal life that's what we're going to see that's what conversion is that's why this definition is so helpful for us today now contextually speaking again we're in verse 15. jesus has been engaging this woman and it was sometimes she's been a bit shrill she's been a bit short answered with him But by the time she gets to verse 15, as we've already noted, Jesus is making some kind of headway with her, and she's saying, give me this water. But of course, her emphasis is kind of telling, right? It says there in verse 15, so that I won't get thirsty and come to draw water anymore. In other words, though she is now, wants the water Jesus is offering her, she is not yet really truly understanding of what kind of water he's actually offering. He's not really, she's not really aware of the kind of needs he's trying to press, in, press towards in her life. And so she's, she sees her greatest need at this point of being freed from her burden of her daily plight and the derision she experiences from her people. It tells us an important truth about how Jesus engages us in the midst of our sin and our brokenness. He, he understands that there's real suffering in this woman's life, right? Right? He understands that, and he's not going to try to bypass her suffering. He's not going to try to bypass the things that have contributed to her brokenness in this moment. But what he understands more than that is that her greatest need is not freedom from her earthly chains, right? Her freedom from her, um, the derision the, the that she feels from her people in Samaria. Not her, her whatever, however way she's maybe been treated by her other five husbands. Like what she needs most is freedom from her spiritual chains. Only when she's able to do that can she actually see, one, the sin that has affected her, whether it's been her sin or someone else's sin. This, this is exactly, this is, this, she, she will only be able to see it when she gets there. And it tells us that, there's much, that that as much as it's important for us as the church, listen to me, as much as it is important for us as the church to help people who are in need, whether that's need in their poverty, need in their some oppression, perhaps, or abuse, their greater need... Our greater need is heavenly freedom. And that's so important for us because sometimes, and I think in our church today, in the church today in general, we are prone to put our attention primarily as a church towards social and political needs and justices, which are, again, can be important, but they're not our primary mission. They're not our primary commission. Our primary commission, as we've already noted, is making disciples, another nation, another kingdom. Now, we're not making that kingdom. Jesus is making that kingdom. We participate in it, right? Seeing people freed from their sin and having joyful relationship with God is our primary mission as the church. And we get so turned upside down because we let the world's agenda become our agenda. We've got to be really careful with that in our day. Now that leads us to our first point, because Jesus goes beyond her assumed need. I don't want to come back here for water, Jesus. I don't want to come back here, remember last week? I don't want to come back here next week at midday in the hot sun so that I have to avoid these women who hate me so much. Jesus says, okay, go get your husband. In other words, the first point that we see in this text, this first of three headings that I have This is this, again, Facing the uncomfortable truth about our sin. Jesus can't really heal her if he doesn't put his finger on the real point of tension, the real thing that has shaped her. Go call your husband and come back here. You can just hear the crickets, right? And she responds um, I don't have a husband. I don't have a husband it would take this intentional question that would be a painful question for her at least temporarily to make her face some of the most uncomfortable truths that have shaped her entire life her shaped all of her relationships and her admission that she's making right here I don't have a husband might be one of the most freeing admissions in her life is it calls her to take a hard look at the sequence of events that have caused her to be the person that she is right here in front of jesus sin and coming face to face with our sin is absolutely critical to genuine conversion so he says to her you're correct you don't have a husband you have five husbands and the, and the beau you're living with right now, he's not your husband. Now, we don't know all the details. The text hasn't given us the details here. Perhaps perhaps in some ways, he, you know, she, he, he needed to help her see that she can only be healed if she's aware of and really, and really is facing the sin that has shaped her life. Jesus needed to call this woman to consider the gravity of her situation. That healing from our sin is impossible until we consider the gravity and the breadth of our condition. And that gives us then some opportunity here to consider this for ourselves. Some, maybe some application points. Let me, let me share a few of you with you, if you don't mind. One, that our suffering and pain have deep roots in sin. You walked in here this morning, no doubt, with some things that have shaped your life. Hopefully a lot of positive, but probably a lot of negative. You did. All of us did. And to pretend that we didn't, it's just honestly not to be self-aware and to quite frankly be liars. Now, some of it's more, some of us, it's much more serious. It's much more shaping. It's been much more toxic, whatever you want, whatever word you want to put around that. But, and sometimes that sin that we walked in here, that, that brokenness, that stuff that we've walked in here with this morning is stuff that we have willfully participated in in our past and we just hate it. And it still shapes who we are. Sometimes it's sin that has been perpetuated against us done to us most of the time it's a little bit of both right just a little bit maybe and so we're not expressly told the details of this woman's marital indiscretions perhaps she is a victim to the popular cultural mishandling of marriage in those days where men basically at that point were able to divorce their wives. They had reconciled and manipulated God's word to the point that they could just divorce their wives any way they want to because they just wanted to. And so maybe she's a victim of that. And so men have just kind of said, okay, I don't want you anymore. Then she gets married to another one and blah, 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 blah. That could possibly be the case here. We don't really know. Or perhaps she contributed to the brokenness of her marriage vows. And so each consecutive husband was... indiscretion in her previous marriage the point is though jesus doesn't deal with that does he sin is sin and whatever you find yourself in it's still sin that shapes and, and 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 molds you into the person that you become until you meet christ until i meet christ it would be very presumptuous of to, us to, to try to figure out exactly which one of these narratives is true. Some people try to do too much of that in these kinds of passages. I, I have no desire to do that, and I don't think Jesus has any desire to do that this morning. What Jesus has a desire to deal with is the fact that sin is at the heart of every broken aspect of our lives, every aspect of it. And to continue to ignore it, whether it's something that we've done or something that's been done to us, is still to, be, is still to not live and rest in the light of what Christ has done. And I see it in unbelievers' lives, but I see it in believers' lives too. I've seen it in my own life, where I've let things that's happened to me, things that I maybe have been innocent of, but they've happened to me, they still shape me and they cause me to respond sinfully to my life as well. And I think that's what we see in this woman, at least at least minimally. The second thing I want to touch on before we move on to the second point is we need to come to terms with the reality of sin that eliminates the possibility to blame shift. Again, as I've already noted, Jesus is bringing her face to face with her sin that has created this broken vessel that stands before him. And so Jesus didn't use this occasion to come to her as some kind of psychobabble counselor and say, hey, you know what, those guys... They're going to get their just desserts if that if that ends up being the situation. He's not just giving her like pat counsel, but neither is he, he's, he. did he rake her over the coals for any contribution she had to the situation she was in. He didn't do that. No, what he is doing is he's trying to he's trying to show her that that in the reality it's not helpful for us to consider all of those things all the time, but to 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 reconcile the fact that no matter where we are. We can't just stand with a fist raised to God saying, well, this is what I've experienced, and so I don't want any of you. Jesus is entering in. Right into the midst of her mess. It didn't matter if the sin was something that was against her or something that she herself participated. In. It had nothing to do with it. What, had, what mattered was he's the one who can free her from it. Amen. He's the only one who can free her from it. That's it. Nothing else. And then the third thing I want to show up that kind of relates to this is it, it causes us to come to terms with sin. Uh, I'm sorry, coming to terms with sin is not about simply rectifying our actions or behaviors, but reconciling our hearts. So just think about this for a second. A lot of us approach trying to deal with our sin by this, well, if I could just do this better, or if I, if I could just not do this, or The other side of the fence is, oh, if they would stop doing this to me, then maybe I would actually get healing. It's always if, right? It's always if of, well, if I can just do better, try harder, or if they would do better, try harder, then all this would go away and I wouldn't feel much better about myself and about my life. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus is not simply trying to rectify her actions or actions against her or behaviors that she's committed or behaviors that have been committed against her. No, the gospel is about heart change. And yes, it will no doubt lead to progressive behavior change. You can, be a, you can best believe that. But Jesus wants to heal this woman's broken, broken and bitter heart. Because when he heals the heart, he will heal the mind and he will heal the hands. It's just the way it works. It's the way it is in the gospel. And when he regenerates this, us with his spirit on the inside and renews our hearts, we're able to face these things that have shaped and hurt us so, bad, poor, so badly. And it frees us from those broken and bitterness, bitter ways. See, it's her bitterness that stands between her and God at this point, not her past issues. It's her pain that is standing between her and God, and between her and Jesus. She can't be settled in proper relationship with God unless she sees that her sin or the sin of others can only be mediated through Christ. Friends, no matter what you come in here with this morning, if you cannot bring it to Jesus, it's not mediated, and you're going to still live in them and still be affected by them. And she's telling her, I'm not here just to make some behavior change in your life. I'm here to change you. I'm here to to love you, to be with you. The question for all of us is, is, how about you and I? Is Is this... Is this hitting us where it needs to be hit this morning? What is it that defines us, that keeps us from experiencing the real healing that is offered to us in the gospel and trusting that God will fully mediate that and at the end when maybe in this time and space things don't work out the way we want to, perhaps that person doesn't get what they should deserve and Jesus himself will mediate full and final justice in the end. True conversion entails ruthless honesty, About our sin, about sin in our lives and how it has affected us. That's that first point. True conversion entails ruthless honesty about sin in our lives and how it has affected us. Point two. We need to recognize the impotence of misplaced worship, because that's what we see next. What does she do when Jesus puts his finger on this sin? She goes, Sir, I I perceive that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. But you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The Samaritans worship what what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. As Jesus is elevating the nature of her real need... She now realizes the conversation is way deeper than she realized. It had much deeper spiritual ramifications than she, than she had recognized and, and then than just her mere need to be freed from her daily chores and the escape from her social scenarios that she hates so much. See that you're a prophet. Naturally, she moves the conversation to uh, a theological inquis- inquisition in some ways. That's what she's doing. Maybe she's trying to <laughs> take a breather from having to deal with her sin for a moment. I don't know. We don't really know that either. But, but what she needs to know is, if he is a prophet, is he a trusted prophet? So then what does she do? She digs into her old bag of tools. Sorry, I hit that right there. The, uh, she digs into her old bag of tricks, her theological knowledge. And what does she do? She says, okay, well, if you're a trusted prophet, here's what my people have told me. This is what I've been taught all my life. The Samaritans worship here. You guys say you worship here. And, um, and so I need to find out if you're with me or against me. If you're really someone I could trust or not trust. Now, in some ways, this is what every good Christian should do. You should do this. You shouldn't read books that, you, that are not by people who are faithful and trusted. You shouldn't go to conferences when there's question about people who are standing on the stage. You shouldn't come to churches if the pastor's in question, or the elders are leading questionably. These are good things. She's not necessarily doing the wrong thing. She's basically asking, is this guy real? Is he reliable? And so Jesus says, okay, let me show you how reliable I am. And look what he says. Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Notice that he just kind of sidesteps the whole thing for at least for a moment. He's not minimizing the differences. There are big differences and there are big theological consequences to Samaritans and Jews for sure. But he's sidestepping and he goes, listen, where you worship is not as important as who you worship and how you worship him. That's what's most important. The hour is coming. In other words, neither a mountain nor a temple in Jerusalem is the center of worship, but the God who has revealed himself through those means. We talked about last week the significance of this land as well, and how God had revealed himself initially to, to, to Canaan, or, or, or Abraham had seen Canaan for the first time from this vantage point there in Shechem. So it's, a, it's an important religious place for Jews and for Samaritans. But the Jews had their temple built in Jerusalem, and so there was this debate, and that's what divided them. And Jesus is saying, look, if all you got your mind on is where you worship, you're missing the God of worship. You're missing Him altogether. Worship that is centered on custom and ancestry is truncated worship. Do you understand that? Worship that is, that, is, that, is, that is centered on custom or ancestry is truncated worship because oftentimes it misses the, the God that it's supposed to point to entirely. It, it can't save anyone. And so Jesus needs to show her the necessity of God-centered worship, does he not? And that's what he says. An hour is coming and it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what she needs to see. See, God is not defined by brick and mortar. It's wonderful to have our own space here. It's wonderful the things that we're about to do and the money we're investing to make this a home. And we should so we can have a a good place to worship, and we should invest in it well. So long as, as we're able to do so. But this building isn't the center of worship. Jesus is. The gathering of God's people is the center of worship, but not this building. This is just a functional tool for us to be able to gather God's people together so that we can worship Him properly. And we should do that each and every Sunday. The corporate worship, we'll talk about in a little bit, is, is, is vitally important to conversion. See, true worshipers... Well, worship, Jesus said, the Father in spirit and truth. And that the Father, this is his entire heart. And what does he mean by worshiping him in spirit and in truth? Well, he's not talking about spirit in terms of Holy Spirit, because there's no, there is no definite article here in the text. It's worship him in spirit. Truth means it's, 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 a, it's to worship him in spirit is to be deep and sincere and God-directed. It's the result of the regeneration that we do receive in the Holy Spirit that has taken place, that renews our affections and our devotions. Amen. Right? So it's something that's within us, that is, that is wrought within us, of course, right through, the right through the Holy Spirit, but it is something that is deep and, again, sincere and God-directed. And to worship Him in truth is to worship Him understanding that th- there's a, we need to have a right conception of who God is. Who, who we worship, right? We worship the God who is revealed God, right? Not a God of our own making, not a God of our own inquiry, not a God of our own suspicions, but a God who's actually revealed Himself. Not a God we, we are not to worship God in, tru- in truth as, as, if, as if we're chummy friends with Him. Or He's some cosmic bellhop who just does our bidding. No, he's a God who has made himself known. You. And you and I are not free to worship God outside of the ways he's made himself known. We're not. But it's not just a right conception of who we worship. It's, there, is a, there is a sense in which there's a right conception of how we worship. And how we worship is not about where, the building, this, this thing, but it's more about, and it's not even about contemporary versus traditional worship services that whole old debate that people have gotten into over the century over the years no it's about worshiping god the way god has commanded us to worship him this is why the golden calf situation back in uh, exodus was such a big deal it wasn't that the people who were left there waiting on moses to come back down from the mount we're trying to worship a different God. In fact, they say explicitly, we need to worship God ourselves because we're not sure if Moses is even still alive, so let's, uh, let's make our own image for us to worship this, the one true God. You would think, well, that sounds okay. They're being creative. They're trying, to, they're trying to be utilitarian. That's awesome. Let's do this. But that's not what God called them to do. We are not free just to use our own creative means just to make up our worship services the way we want to we're just not we are only called to worship him the way that he has commanded us to worship him it's why we're very selective about the songs we sing it's why we're very selective about making sure that we read scripture together on sunday mornings it's why we're very committed to doing lord's supper every sunday and baptisms when we can next week we have several going through the waters of baptism by the way we have a really baptism that's functional now hallelujah for that But the reality is it's very simple we need to not only know the who we worship but we need to know how we worship him and we're not free just to make up worship just because we're being really creative God's not happy with that and we don't like that do we because we think well how dare God to to, to spur my own creative abilities but you're not God and neither am I and when God commands something We simply must receive it in obedience and joy. It may be hard, but it's still nonetheless important. So at the end of the day, this second point just reminds us that proper worship of the true God is absolutely essential to conversion. If it's essential that you understand your sin, it's essential that you understand the proper worship of God is essential to conversion. If salvation doesn't result in true worship, it is not true conversion. I can't say it any more plainly than that. If we are worshiping the wrong God, then we are, we, there is no hope or freedom from the sin that slays us. Namely, we must worship the God who has revealed himself to us, not the one who simply is passed down to us through custom and ancestry or tradition or creativity. We're not free to do that. And so that leads us then to the last, this really is question that leads us to the last point is, so then how? How is this God known? This one true living God. And that leads us to that last point. Messiah. We need, number three, a Messiah. And she knows this as much, right? That's what she says in 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. So in other words, she's just taking this little thing with Jesus and she kind of reduces it to, okay, well, you know what? The Messiah is coming and he's just going to, he's going to settle this whole little squabble for us, isn't he? In other words, she's not still quite there yet. She's moving, but she's not quite there yet. At least but momentarily, things are going to change for her. She, like many of us, at one point or another in our lives, is orbiting around the truth, but still doesn't quite see it yet. Until Jesus responds to her. Jesus told her, I am he. I've settled the issue. And, and guess what? I didn't come here, right? I didn't come here just to, just to, to settle your mere theological squabbles. No, I've come that you may to, to see what John has already shown us throughout our study John thus far, that he's come to tabernacle among us, means he's come to live among us, to be with us, to be near to us, so he can bring true and lasting joy to his people. That he's come to be the God who is the true temple, who, who, who atones for our sins when all those sacrifices would never do. That he's the God who causes new birth in us through the Spirit and washes us clean from our sin. This is who Jesus is. He is the Messiah and he's not the one, and he is the one who gets to settle the score. He's the one who gets to settle the score. It's not these little squabbles between Samaritans and Jews. It's not these little squabbles between um, the cultural debates and political debates. It is Jesus who gets to settle the score. And he will settle the score when he returns again. My friends, have you met this Christ? I trust that most of you have. And if you have... Does your love for him continue to emanate from your lives and it shape everything about you and all your hopes no matter what challenges we face in the world today? Is it clearly seen to your neighbors? Or do they see you fretting over things that will burn up in heaven one day? This Jesus settles the score. He settles the score if you have not met this christ i would surely love the opportunity to share him with you any of our elders would love the opportunity to share him with you any member in here that you may know would be loved to share him with you because he's why we're here this morning he's why we're here this morning for no other reason but jesus see john has been serving us up christ week after week in this study so far and if we walk away, if you walk away in these, ser- in these sermons unconverted, it's not because it hasn't been made plain. So let's just begin to wrap it up. If the context of our sermon series right now is to think about what faithful evangelism looks like in our lives, and we've assessed that it means honesty about our sin the 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 impotence of cultural or you know worship of some sort how it never will do and it's about needing jesus my question to you a couple of thoughts i have before we roll out and then josh comes and leads us in our time at the table faithful sharing of the gospel that leads to conversions is is bringing people face to face with sin ...that has left them broken. We've made it as plain as we possibly can... ...but it's important that we just stop and think about... ...that's a point we're making here this morning. And this is not licensed to be broad stroke condemnation on people... ...when they don't meet your expectations... ...or when they are still wallowing around in their sins... No, it's not that. It's a, it's a call to compassionate willingness to enter into others' sordid stories and be humble enough, merciful enough, and helpful enough to see them through the, the, the sting of this sin that informs all the world that they know and that they can finally meet Jesus. Amen. Patient endurance with sinners in sin is absolutely critical for conversion. If we can't do that May I just recommend, one, you repent to Jesus because you can't. <laughs> and two, stay away from broken sinners for a while until you can get that right. Because it takes persistent, passionate, patient time with them to help them see face-to-face. Not condemnation heaped over them over and over and over. Because we are not set in the place of condemnation. We've not been given that role. Even Jesus said I didn't come to condemn. Now he does. He comes to judge. And he's the final judge and arbiter of all things. But even he said that, then why do we take on that responsibility? Helping people see their sin face to face and come, come to terms with it that has left them broken is just an opportunity for us to be long-suffering, patient, compassionate with people and be humble, merciful, and helpful while we're doing it. Third thing, second thing I want to say before we end is faithful sharing of the gospel that leads to conversion is demonstrated in faithful worship of God's people. What you're doing right now is evangelistic not the fact that we might get scores of people who come down here and convert this morning but the fact that you've said this morning above all of the things that you could possibly do today this is an anchor for my life because it resets everything from all the mess of the rest of the week says to the world this god is supreme above all things faithful worship of god's people. Is absolutely necessary for conversion. The worship of God's people is commanded by God because it stands as a demonstration of his superiority over every other God that postures for our affections. And every day you wake up this week, there will be a God posturing for your affections. Every day, the war is on. And it's not going to slow up at all until Jesus returns. And so when we come week after week as a, as a demonstration, as God's people collecting, saying, I need nothing but Jesus. Friend, you are making a declaration about God. I'm making a declaration about God. See, in one sense, this time of worship is a reset for God's people who are seeking to, fit, to, to fight the good fight, but are coming in from the battlefield wearied and tired. I hope you come in wearied and tired every week. You know why? Because it means you're fighting. But in another sense, it shows us forth that no other God is our rock in this life than the one true living God. I love this quote by Jonathan Cruz, a book I'm reading on worship right now it just helps us understand the importance of corporate worship as a command from God and how corporate worship is to be preferred for private worship and here's what he says Christian worship functions as a counterformation to mission informa- uh, to the mission I'm sorry let me say that again Christian worship functions as a counterformation to the misinformation of secular worship in which we are thrown into every day of our lives Christian liturgy, Christian worship, functions as a counter formation. You're countering the, the the secular and the wicked formations of worship that have been that have been thrown upon you in this week. When you come back in here each and every Sunday by saying, "No, I need nothing but the God revealed in Scripture and, God, and the One who saves His people." Amen. That's it. Proper Christian worship. Is the process that God uses to reform his people on a weekly basis, and it means and is a means by which God's people declare the goodness of God they serve. So, faithful sharing the gospel that leads to conversion brings us face to face with our sins, it brings us into a a beautiful call to worship, and then this last is it leads us to meet the Messiah. At the end of the day, we need to meet the Messiah. And so do your friends, so do your neighbors, so does your family. There's not a day I wake up that I don't need to meet the Messiah. Meet with the Messiah. Meet with Jesus to be reminded of his love and grace towards me, to remind of his sustaining power in my life, remind me of the fact that the Holy Spirit resides inside of me. There's not a day that goes by. And there's, again, as I said in the last point, there's nothing more beautiful and more powerful than God's people worshiping together to show that each Sunday. But nonetheless, we need to meet the Messiah. Only his accomplishments on the cross, only his his power through the resurrection over death and the grave can lead us away from sin and its destruction into the life of full freedom and joy that you and I were created to live. Friend, if you come in here this morning and you're just dry and weary, and maybe you haven't met this Jesus, I'm begging you, meet the Messiah. This Jesus is worth meeting, and we would love to introduce you to him today. So let's pray. And let's take the Lord's table for those of us who believe and trust in this Christ and glorify Him as we do what He commands us to do. God, help us now. As we leave, as we prepare now to take this supper together, we do each and every week, and show us, Jesus, how we might display your glory wherever we go to lead people in honest consideration of conversion, to face sin, to call people to worship, and to meet the Messiah. God, help us to keep that as our aim this week. We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.